Hello and welcome back to Dollars and Dragons. Today I have with me Daniel Kwan. If you'd like to introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah, totally. Has anybody ever said, no, I will not introduce myself? Has that ever happened to you? No, it hasn't. <laughs> but now someone's going to do it to, to fuck with me. Yeah, and I don't mean to second guess your, your introduction. No, hi. hi. Uh, my name is Daniel Kwan. I'm a game designer, cultural consultant, freelance writer. Uh, I've, uh, I guess, most notable for reading legacy D&D books live, but also working on products like, you know, Candlekeep Mysteries, uh, Dark Archive, Avatar Legends, uh, Motherlands RPG, amongst other things. I've consulted for companies like, uh, you know, Dimension 20, uh, and a lot of indie publishers. I've been working in TTRPGs since uh, 2017. And I've been playing TTRPGs for over two decades. 2017. Oh, my yeah. God. Oh, I was such a different person then. <laughs> Everybody. I mean, oh, my gosh, you should be a different person, you know, yeah, sure. six years ago, right? If you if you're yeah. the same person six years later, uh, I'd be concerned. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, let's um, let's talk about something that uh, maybe you get asked this a lot and I'm just not aware of it. But like, how does <laughs> cultural consulting work and what is it that you kind of offer to projects and like when is the right time to bring on a cultural consultant and things like that yeah no that this is something i guess asked all the time i was actually just at a con this past weekend i did a whole panel on it and i did a cultural consulting session during uh, the panel like oh, an great. impromptu session uh, just to kind of illustrate what it what it is but um a, uh, a cultural consultant is essentially a uh, professional who works Actually, in any industry, it's not exclusive to tabletop RPGs. You have them in video games and in liter in literally all walks of business. Um, but a cultural consultant is somebody who is brought in in tabletop games to work on a project as sort of a, a third party. Uh, a cultural consultant will typically uh, flag a project for harmful representations of, of people. It doesn't necessarily have to be of like just Asians, but there are also like other marginalized populations and, and groups. Uh, cultural consultants are usually brought in at the end, but it's actually best to bring a cultural consultant in while you're working on the project since they're there to kind of identify, hey, this is, you know, this is content or this is art. Uh, these are certain game mechanics that can cause harm. To, uh, or, hey, if you develop these further, this could cause harm. Or, hey, this is great. Keep this up. A cultural consultant is really there to make sure that a project doesn't do harm to people. Yeah. Um, so for a lot of people, they end up, um, like you said, they bring them in at the end of the project. Um, I think for a lot of this stuff that uh, I have personally been project managing is uh, that where the I can speak. So that's <laughs> I'm OK. <laughs> I'm a professional podcaster. So um, when I uh, brought in some uh, cultural consultants, like immediately it was like, hey, these are some things that you might want to flag. And it made me really just reevaluate what it is that I was writing and why. And even just having that knowledge that someone was going to be there with me and like sort of providing a different perspective that was uh, meant to help me and the final product be better mm -hmm. was a great weight like lifted off me. I remember the first meeting I had with our uh, sensitivity slash cultural consultant. And I was incredibly nervous because I was just like, oh my gosh, we have all these drafts of stuff that I think are great. But like, you know, what Am I if... I have to rewrite it? Yeah, well, <laughs> not only or that. What if, then... it, what if I'm an awful person? It, exactly that. Yeah, yeah, that was the that was the feeling. And um, yeah, and it 
it it can it was kind of nerve wracking, but I definitely um, am very glad that we did start that process. Um, and not only that, but like the product is so much better now because we have brought in all these outside sources to who has no stake in writing it necessarily, unless we also hire them as a writer, which we did in our case um, in a different spot, and then we'll just have some. Okay, yeah, consult. I was about to yeah, say. yeah, yeah. They they won't consult on their own stuff, but um, but yeah. So it, it's it's just one of those things where I think um, I was I was looking at like. Um, whether or not we wanted to uh, approach certain aspects of like, like you said, art without having a particular cultural consultant on the team who could take a look at stuff and then we could adjust it because we wanted to incorporate um, South Asian architecture into our book. And so we have, but we wanted to make sure that it was like, there was nothing wrong with it unintentionally um, or something that was just, uh, you know, just offensive or... um, you know, harmful to people. So with cultural consulting, like I said, like the goal of the cultural consultant is to minimize harm. And if you're minimizing harm in a product, you're you are maximizing how many consumers you can get on it, right? It's I think a lot of people when they think about cultural consultants are like, oh, this person is here to like silence me or stop me from from doing something. And I mean, in a way, yeah, they're here to stop you from doing something that could hurt people um, and hurt your product and hurt your business, right? Um, cultural consulting is really interesting because it can be something that's reactive, like, oh, I forgot to hire a cultural consultant or, hey, this is going to market. We should probably hire someone. Or it can be proactive, like, hey, we're in the middle of drafting this. I want to bring in somebody. Um, the one thing that I think a lot of folks kind of see cultural consultants as, and this is actually a thing that I help people forget, is that they think cultural consultants are kind of like a stamp of approval. Like, ah, yes, I have you as a stamp of approval. Therefore, this couldn't possibly be wrong. Or therefore, yeah, like you have given me your Asian card to say that this is okay. <laughs> oh um, it, you, I mean, you don't know. I get this all the time. Like I, and I've talked about this on like the Asians Represent podcast. I had somebody actually ask me if Asians Represent podcast had a literal sticker oh that God. we could give to a publisher Fuck. to say that we approved of their product. <clears throat> you see how problematic that is? Yeah, that is super um, problematic. Yeah. And, and the thing is that like cultural consultants aren't also there to only work with white people. Um, cultural consultants should be brought in on projects that, that have diverse teams because everybody has their own biases and it's always good to have sort of this like third party, right? somebody to just kind of like verify that you don't have any sort of offensive representations of cultures or marginalized peoples, right? Um, to do that sort of content audit without knowing what the writers intended on portraying, because intent doesn't always translate to the final product. Yeah, um, it's it's really, I think in a lot of cases, it's really just a matter of just trying. And then because by virtue of trying, honestly, you're going to get so much of a better result than if you hadn't. And 100%. if you make... And if you make a mistake along the way, then you're just like, okay, well, we'll either fix it, or if we can still, or we will, uh, you know, edit it out of future editions or whatever we need to do. And cultural consultants can miss things. I mean, look at the last year, Wizards of the Coast released Neon Dynasty Kamigawa, that that new set. Mm -hmm. I guess at this point, not new. Um, But they released like a, a whole Asian set. And they had touted the the use of cultural consultants, like two of my peers who are great. When it came out, there was one card that was like blatantly offensive to, to folks of the Asian diaspora. And mm-hmm. if you're listening, I was at this con and I brought this up because folks were like, I don't understand what a cultural consultant could potentially flag. Um, there is a card in Magic the Gathering called Dockside Chef. 
And oh if, if you look up Dockside Chef, uh, as someone of the Asian diaspora, you would find this like immediately offensive. Um, and as somebody who is not of the Asian diaspora, you might not understand it. And when I brought this up at the panel I did at Breakout Con, all of the Asian people in the room immediately went, oh. And all the non-Asian people were like, had a similar face to what you're making right now. And it's like, I don't get what's wrong with this. Um, And that's okay, right? And that's why you hire a cultural consultant. But also a cultural consultant can't catch everything. It would be impossible. And intent is very important, right? With this card, just to provide you with some context, like one thing that a lot of Asian kids, uh, uh, like of the diaspora, especially in North America, grow up having to deal with is like bullying around Asian food. Like, oh, I, I brought noodles for lunch. Oh, you're eating worms. Right. Oh, Asian food is gross and exotic and weird. Uh, and when you see a card like this, you see not only an Asian character, you see an eyeball inside the bowl of ramen. And the flavor text uh, says the squirming is how you know it's fresh. And uh, it, it plays on that stereotype of Asian food being weird and gross. And when you think about the mechanics as well and the fact that it's also a black card mm-hmm. uh, within Magic the Gathering, you also think of the themes associated with that color. Yeah. Um, and you can immediately kind of understand that, oh, this could reinforce negative stereotypes uh and that's like my go-to example as of late of like hey this is this is what a cultural consultant can point out yeah i you know i was just i had so i had my own thoughts um about what might be offensive by that but it was totally wrong so um, and and that's why a cultural consultant is important um but it's also important to have sort of diverse creators working on the product itself right because a cultural consultant could spot something like this but you as the not you but the the actual producer of the project of the product isn't actually obligated to act on what a cultural consultant says yeah so that's why they're not like the end-all be-all that everyone kind of frames them as they're a component i'm i'm aware that um at least i uh was told that some cultural consultants prefer that they not be listed on products Especially if they see the final product and they're like, well, you didn't take my notes. You didn't do anything with my notes. And I've worked with some companies that um, big companies can't say, unfortunately. Um, But I've worked with one big company and I'm kind of like a cultural consultant that's on retainer for them. So they're just like, hey, you know, we got a new thing. We have an established rate and everything like that. That says we we don't credit you to protect you because they understand that while intent is really like really important, you can miss out on things or somebody will find something to be upset about. And they don't want all of the blame being put on this person being credited as a cultural consultant. So they purposefully don't do that. And that's a part of the initial conversation that I had with them. And I was like, absolutely. I like your intent behind not crediting me. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, I guess in that way, um, you deal with a lot of shit online, I believe, right? Yes, so just, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you you don't need, like, the additional, like, hey, the new, let's say, for instance, not that you were or you're going to. No, yeah. But, like, the new Magic card comes out and, like, it says, you know, at some point, Daniel Kwan is in there and it's like, this is why... How dare this card- you? <laughs> this is why the racist card came out because Daniel Kwan missed it. Yep. Yeah, so that would be... You don't uh, want that. Um, yeah, that sucks. Yeah, but that's why it's really important, like we were talking about before we even started recording, it's really important to, you know, be careful about the projects that you work on and, you know, align yourself with folks who match your values. Be really like, you have to be value driven when you're trying to be a freelancer here. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's easy to be like, oh, I'm just going to take on any opportunity that comes my way. But what if you take on a project or somebody who ends up, you know, can I curse on this podcast? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. What if I end up yeah, yeah. G- given the last episode that I we talked about, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, shout out to Alex Roberts. Yeah, um, yeah. 
but yeah, what if you end up working for somebody who's like a fucking asshole and yeah. they end up being like a super toxic person? Like I have, when I first sort of entered the industry and started to make contacts, I I was really lucky to have friends who were like, stay away from this person. Don't don't be near this person. And years down the line, you know, things become public. And it's like, oh yeah, I'm glad I didn't. Yeah, that's um it's it's unfortunately one of the things that we're and, and we talked briefly about this and we have I think we have very differing views. Uh, mm. and I think and I respect your viewpoint on this, but I did want to talk about briefly just in broad strokes, not about specifics, but one of the reasons why I think it's very important, like especially for unionization, at least in like the United States and uh um, you commonly have unions in oh, Canada, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. So, like, um, is there um, for not that you have to name your uh, your day job, but like your day job? Do you have a union? No, I can't talk about that stuff. Okay. 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 Yeah, okay. I can't <laughs> talk about that stuff, unfortunately. Yeah, but no I have problem. been in unions before in previous uh-huh. careers. I have been on strike before. I think the longest strike I was on for like was like three months. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, like, I totally understand. Come, I come from like a family of like my dad was. was lifetime union guy right yeah um but yeah totally get it uh it's solidarity in this industry is something that like doesn't really exist um there isn't a a base level of agreed upon pay Um, yeah there isn't yeah none of that exists um there also i mean talking about cultural consultants there also isn't sort of like a a stamp of like you are a qualified cultural consultant yeah um there isn't uh, a governing body yeah uh, because it's really hard to to kind of to kind of do that uh, because when you look at a cultural consultant, everyone has different expertise. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about what a good cultural consultant should be, it's like, well, you need to have someone of the group that could be affected by the harm you're trying to mitigate. It's like, oh, if I'm, yeah. you mentioned South Asian architecture. Uh, if I want to hire a cultural consultant to look over the broader themes related to South Asia that I'm including in the art or the writing or whatnot in my, should I hire somebody that's not South Asian? Mm-hmm. Probably, probably not, right? You want to hire somebody of that group. Um, but you also want to ensure that that person does have extensive knowledge based on lived experience and or academic expertise, because yeah. you never want to assume that somebody who looks a certain way knows everything about their culture or knows everything about this mm-hmm. specific aspect of their culture. It's like going up to any person on the street and be like, ah, you're Chinese. I, I would like to hire you to talk about Chinese music or you're Korean. I'm making a game about K-pop. Tell me all about it. Like, I need a consultant. It's like, God damn. I was I was I was literally on like on the same panel. Um, one of the panelists was we were talking about cultural consulting. And one of the panelists who's black literally told the story about somebody who approached him. And like, so I'm making a game of rap music. Oh, I'd like God. to hire you as a consultant. And they were like, what? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So um, no, no lead, no, no, no lead. Like, <laughs> no, I don't know about the lead or not, but I get tons of messages about people being like, I'd like to hire you as a cultural consultant. And I will always ask, well, what's the project? They'd be like, okay, so it's based on feudal Japan. I'm like, you know, I'm Chinese, right? Oh, shit. Um, but like, I have a master's in Japanese archaeology. That, right. that is my academic background. But there are plenty of other cultural consultants out there who are Japanese and an academic background and more lived experience than me from a values perspective. Like why would I take work away from them? And why would I compromise the integrity of somebody's project or my my sort of reputation as a consultant? I don't know how I got to this agenda, this, this tangent, but we were talking about unions and standardization in the industry. (laughs) Yeah. We're well, um, basically, you know, we, we had that uh, conversation briefly before we started recording about um, pay rates. And I'm of the, my entire platform is built on like talking about pay because it only benefits fits corporations when they control the conversation about pay 100 so i understand why a lot of freelancers do not talk about pay in the open because they can be affected negatively by these corporations who have power over them and it can influence 
their opportunities. That's really interesting, actually, when you, you talk about like corporations versus like sort of like independent producers. Like for me, when I've worked with like big companies, I'm not going to name like specific companies. But like I've always been a lot of big companies actually operate off of like a flat route. They're like, hey, we'll pay you X number of dollars for this. Um, whereas like indie creators will often be like, pay you by the word. Some big companies do do that. Um, and I have been paid by by the word, but the rates are always variable. I've taken on small projects for as low as 10 cents a word uh, as a writer, which is actually the industry standard, believe it or not, which honestly needs to be reevaluated. But I've taken on like projects that are like, oh, I know who you are. I'm doing you a favor or like, hey, hey, it would just be cool to participate on something like this. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, like you said, I have a day job so I can I can go and say, yeah, you know what? It would be cool to work for a little bit less just so I can help out a friend. I've worked at, you know, on jobs that pay like 25 cents a word, which is honestly what people should pay. Mm -hmm. um, but not everyone can afford that. Yeah, um, for sure. But that said, if you can't afford to pay someone fair, you shouldn't be hiring somebody in the first place. Yeah, yeah, I, I right. agree. I agree. Um, I Initially, when I started the project, I was like, well, what's the standard industry? And I was talking to some writers about it, and they were like, hey, it's like 8 to 12 cents. And I was, and this was like a year or two ago, and I was just like, and then I did the math on like how much you'd need to write. And I was just like, holy shit, these people must be like producing like, and it was like, I, I remember like doing the math. And I think it was like, you had to write like six Wizards of the Coast books, hardbacks <laughs> a year to make a living wage. And I was just like, there's no way. I, I don't know what the word count was for my adventure in Candlekeep Mysteries, but I, it was around 7,000 words. But if it's 7,000 words at 8 cents a word, let's just say that would have been $560, oh, which is not what I got paid. I got paid way more than that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, got, I felt like I got paid very fairly for that. Okay. Um, I, on That's the record, I had a really good experience working on that. Like I was the writer, but they didn't push back on any of the ideas that I had. Um, what you see in the book is what I wrote pretty much. Um, cool. I had really good conversations with my editor, Hannah Rose, mm -hmm. um, about oh, like, Hannah. okay, this is, yeah, Hannah's great. Right. But I was like, okay, I don't want this. Um, uh, I was like, please remove all I actually, one of the big things that Hannah helped me with was when I initially wrote it, I wanted to book of inner alchemy in the world of D and I didn't want it to be a pocket dimension. I didn't want any mm -hmm. of that, uh, because like, I didn't want to basically have this Asian adventure where you have oh. to go and leave the surrounding area to go and do something interesting related to my culture. I wanted it to be in world. Yeah. And so me thinking that I had to do everything possible to root it there, I was like, you know, lots of mentions of Karatur and Sholung and all of that. Mm -hmm. And after I had actually read through all of Oriental Adventures live, I was like, oh, I can't have this. And I actually mess messaged Hannah and I was like, let's keep one. Can we keep one mentioning of show for Bakme, the main the main villain? villain mm -hmm. i say with the air quotes and remove all mentions of Karaturin. and i was like done i remember chris perkins sent me an email and was like hey this is the art that the artist has produced these are the drafts what are your thoughts and i was like they don't really look super asian i want them to look chinese and chris yeah. was like i thought so i'll get that feedback to them and the art ended yeah. up being incredible yeah um i had a really good experience on that book on on that project but um yeah uh as i was saying like i got paid a flat rate for that and no pay is so variable, even with cultural consulting. Some cultural yeah. consultants off of a per word basis. Yeah. Some do it by the hour. Mm -hmm. um, for writing, one of the things is like, do you expect your writer to just pull these ideas out of their head? Are they not getting paid yeah. for any of the intellectual labor uh, that they're actually going to go through to actually yeah. produce 
this work for you, all the research. What about the cultural consultant who might have to look through reference material? Yeah. Like, I, I, that's why I think having 25 cents a word actually accounts for that for writing. Or yeah. that's why I like the charge by the hour. Mm-hmm. And I set that expectation right up front. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think that um, a lot of the time people kind of get wrapped up in like, hey, let's let's budget. Well, let's create a budget for this project based on what we're going to sell it at. And we don't want to charge as much as like a wizard's product. So we're going to like charge a little bit less or we're going to charge right at what a wizard's product does. And, and I'm just like, but your infrastructure doesn't support what wizards can do. Yeah. So you should be charging, if not as much as wizards, a little bit more for indie projects when people buy it because you need to pay people better because you don't have all the supporting mechanisms that a big corporation has. At the same time, though, I, I in their hypothetical defense i get why right. they would do that though because there are a lot of people who are like five bucks for for a couple of magic items or five bucks for a class or whatnot people hear that people see that on social media and i think on one end you're absolutely right like creators need to value their time their investment and their work but consumers also need to understand that i think consumers for the most part are not because look times are tough financially too uh for most of the world right now yeah um so a, a lot of people i think they're there is a degree of understanding that needs to be like kind of established on both sides. And I guess that's why this podcast is also important, right? Because it's not just for people oh. who want to go into the industry. It's for people who want to understand more and be, you know, sort of like informed consumers. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I guess I pitched the podcast or like the pitch of the podcast is like making a living wage in tabletop. But I have found that there are people who listen to this who have no intention of ever working in tabletop. Or get scared <laughs> away. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly that, exactly that. Um, but yeah, I think for most people, like the sort of the pathway, and this is the same thing I say about pro GMing. And now that I have had like a year and a half of like running a project and like work working in the industry, even though I haven't, I've, I've worked for like one company. You work or, in the industry. You work in the industry. You're contributing right. to the community. You're contributing to the, the consumer base, right? Right. Like I would say that like folks who are like pro GMs seem to devalue their their worth in the industry and are like, oh, I'm not an actual TTRPG professional. No, you are. You know, thank you for saying that because sometimes I say the same thing to pro GMs all the time. And like the number one problem that I run into for helping people like sort of build up their business and starting to charge a living wage when they're running games is convincing them like, hey, you need to not be marketing to people who cannot afford the service. You're not trying to convince people to play with you. There's an audience out there who will pay you a living wage. You just have to do a good enough job to earn it. And that's why and there that, are also platforms for that too now, right? Yeah. That, that yeah. help like pair you up with the, you know, with like pro GMs and stuff. Like when I was doing a pro GM, I was doing like it for cash, like in person. Yeah. Um, that's sketchy. <laughs> no, it was great. But, but I mean, for context, I was doing it with like families and stuff. Oh, like okay, that. okay, okay. Like exclusively focused on like teens and stuff. Okay. okay um, because okay. I, I got my start in TTRPGs actually. Um, yeah. I don't know if you know about like that deep in the Daniel Kwan lore, but I, I got my start. The reason why I got into the industry is because I was a teacher. So in Toronto, there's a museum called the Royal Ontario Museum. It's Canada's largest cultural and natural history museum. And they have a D&D program there. It's actually where I learned how to play D&D. And it's, uh, it's like a camp. They do it throughout the year and in the summers and on holidays and stuff. And you can actually go learn how to play D&D and play D&D in the galleries and learn about science and history and shoot bows, hold swords, learn about dinosaurs. And That's I, fucking taught that, rad. I taught that class 
for That's fucking rad. Well, I oh worked at the I worked at the museum. It was actually my first job was as an assistant in the DMV oh program. Oh and I was making like I don't remember what it was. More than minimum wage at the time. I was like 15 years old and I was like I'm getting paid to play D&D and take care of kids. This is cool. And yeah. when I got my my degree, I was like I could I'm teaching this course now. And I taught that course for like 8 years. Wow. I think I've taught over a thousand kids how to play D and D and other TTRPGs at this point, but I was doing that with without the expectation of ever working on a TTRPG because I didn't think that was yeah. possible. Yeah. And you know, I I had like a staff and I was getting paid to teach and play. It was really cool. Um, while I was in grad school, it was the perfect way to supplement my my sort of income as a researcher. And, and then some of the the families that aged out of my program because it was a limit of like fourteen parents mm-hmm. would hire me to be like, "Hey, Daniel, we just got a whole bunch of families together. Can you just kind of do this on a Sunday afternoon and you just kind of maintain a client base?" I I ran D and D for this one family consistently for like two years every Sunday, um, and it was great when I was in grad school. It was awesome. Yeah. Um, that's dope but i got my start in like writing because of reddit um okay one of like the the camp director sort of like the, the director of like they call it rom kids at the time mm-hmm. uh, like the education department that was dedicated to kids programming saw on reddit that somebody was talking about oh somebody does D D at the rom and i guess what had happened is that somebody saw like saw me doing it in the gallery and picture or like wrote about it on reddit one of the people commenting was like an artist who worked in tabletop and i was like oh how cool would it be to have a tabletop rpg artist come into my class Mm-hmm. and actually five-year-long campaign that like mm-hmm. all the kids contributed to. We had this big setting. And I was like, well, we have this, what if we had an artist come in and talk about like artistic references and poses and actually watercolored our character live for us? Wow. And I reached out, well, first I checked if I had the budget for it. And I reached out <laughs> and I was like, hey, want to do this? I see you're in my city. Like, let's do it. And they ended up being like a very prolific comics and RPG Um portable city on twitter and we became friends and then they introduced me to some people and i started going to conventions and then i ended up getting my first rpg gig not long after it was my first one working on uh yellow king that is so cool okay i see portable city okay yeah they're great they're great um but yeah we've been friends since and uh kind of like supporting each other in our our own individual endeavors since then but i went from basically teaching D D science and history at a museum while being in grad school being the I'm the, I'm the, I, as far as I know, I'm the first ever Chinese person to write a Chinese themed adventure for official yeah. D&D. That's so fucking like, cool. fairly certain. I'm at least for fifth edition. Actually, I'm fairly certain I am. Although yeah. there are a lot of products for third edition. Yeah. That, yeah. There, there, there's that glut of official products there for a while. My favorite um, edition of D&D is 3.5. Is it? Yeah, I love I love three point five D and D. Then you love Pathfinder, don't you? I love Pathfinder. Okay, 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 that makes sense. I love Pathfinder. <laughs> I, I mean, I love all all TTRPGs, right? But I think a lot of people fall into the trap of like only playing the ones that their friends want to play, and that's mm-hmm. currently that's currently me. Like, I want to play all these other games, but all of my friends just want to play D and D, so I just play D and D. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, for you, and um, have you? Anything to say about like projects being run and like how you think they're run and like where you think the industry sort of needs to go in that direction? Because you have a lot of experience. You've been on a lot of different teams. Yeah. Are you a project manager as well for... So uh, I work in tech. I work in okay. tech. That's my day job. Uh-huh. Um, it's hard to describe my role, but uh, and I'm not really supposed to like, I don't really talk about work outside mm-hmm. of like t- my day job in TTRPG spheres. Um, 
I'm kind of like the dungeon master of my department, you know, in a sense. Um, but <laughs> okay. uh, I'm like, a, it's hard to say. I'm like a, tech, a technical writing is a part of what I do. Uh-huh. And um, one thing that I've learned, not just for being a tech, but also being an academic, like I was, uh, I always say like a proud PhD dropout, working as an academic, traveling the world, collecting data as an archaeologist, working on digs, but also, you know, working in tech. Uh, and having been work, I've worked on I don't know how many RPG products at this point. But one thing that I think most people need to really think about ahead of time is how they're going to manage the project. What is this suite of tools that you're going to use when you are going to hire freelancers or work on your own? I, th- I see a lot. Of, I think the norm now is a lot of people tend to be working off of Discord. I'm not a huge fan personally. I think a lot of people use Discord because it's it's kind of uh, an inexpensive and uh, solution to like Slack. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. a very similar like sort of experience. But I think when they go and they work on like Discord, they forget that the actual work on the project is being done on something else. Yeah, uh, and so they tend to use like the G Suite, Google Workspace, yeah. or Office three sixty five. I know for Candlekeep, we worked off of Office products, so I used Microsoft Word for that one. But for say like Motherlands, use Google Docs for that. Um, yeah. But folks need to have very, very clear project management protocols in place. Like, when are we meeting? Who is taking notes? Where did these notes live? How are we even tracking version history on our documents? Like, that's not something people think about. Like, a lot of people think about deadlines and word count and how much they're paying people. How is feedback going to be given? What is the cadence to which feedback will be given? Uh, yeah. What is the cadence to which we're, we're meeting? Are we meeting on a monthly basis? Or is the project lead or is the lead of this one segment of the project going to be hosting office hours or anything like that on, uh, on a scheduled basis so that people can get in touch with one another? How are freelancers going to actually communicate with one another to make sure that their content is aligned? Uh, what What's what's in place before, like, have you done your mechanics and then you're bringing in narrative writers? Or do you have all this narrative done before the mechanics are even done? And yeah, then if I, you change the mechanics drastically, do you have to have all the world writers come back to yeah. work on it? That happened on a project I worked on. Yeah, um, yeah. The world stuff no longer matched how mm-hmm. the game was actually going to be played. So you right, have yeah, everybody yeah. brought back in, work on everything again. Yeah, that is a very interesting problem to have and like sort of manage. And I think that falls on a lot of times like... The, so I have like a trifecta and how I've set up my teams now and like moving forward, I've learned so much from running Vineyard RPG and like moving forward, I know how I want to organize things a little bit better. And a lot of the time it really just comes down to like in what I decided, I need a project manager. So I hired a yes. project manager. <laughs> and <laughs> so I don't know if you uh, know Lila Fujiwara, um, but uh, no. I, I hired um, I hired her and uh, she has this background in, uh, in tech um, like yourself. Okay. And um, has worked for like Google and Android and like has that sort of like organizational project manager like background. And I was like, yep, I need you to t- <laughs> to to basically just be the bad person. I need you to be the deadline person and the person that like keeps us out of that so that the creatives can be creative. And then my narrative designer, my mechanical designer, they can focus on that. And then you and me can have these conversations about uh, when things are due and if things are like um, on time. And then that way it takes the stress out of the creatives of like figuring that stuff out. Because for small projects, one of the biggest stresses is like this sort of diffusion of responsibility because like there's not enough people to do everything. So everybody has to pick up a little bit more. And it's like yeah, that. Or un- like the broad yeah. diffusion of responsibility, right? Because it's sometimes it's not even clear who is responsible for what. It's just like everybody just kind of do something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think also, you know, a good thing with the project manager is like, hey, 
not only are you reinforcing deadlines, but you're also reinforcing communication norms. And if, you, if you're working on a project that has like this big fantasy world, how are you going to ensure that one person who's working on like one land communicates with another person who's working on a completely separate land, but they trade with one another, right? How are you going to do that? How are you going to ensure that you know, they aren't undoing each other's work? Like, how are you, what is the framework that's being set in place before you even hire somebody? Like, I'm, I'm currently working on a new game. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not D&D. Um, um, it's like uh, the way I'm kind of pitching it right now. It's, uh, it's the combat of Sekiro and Demon Slayer okay. <laughs> meets Wuxia. And I have like a publisher that I'm working with and a co-designer. We know that we want to hire freelancers. Uh, almost exclusively within Asians represent, actually, we made a very early decision not to bring on any freelancers until we have a strong foundation set and we know exactly what we want people to write. Yeah. Um, that's something that I think people need to think about like really early. Yeah. Like, who do you want to write for you? Who is your consultant? Who? What is the art direction going to be? And then how are you going to market this thing? But like one creator, one game designer can't possibly think about that. Yeah, right? because you might not have the expertise for it. So that's why project management is important. Bringing on somebody for social media is also really important. If it's going to be a big project. You should probably have somebody just manage your Kickstarter. That's what I have. Yeah, <laughs> I saw. I yeah. saw on your Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have uh, Anya. She's she's yep. wonderful. Um, really love working with her. Uh, hire Anya. She does freelance work. So if you need a Kickstarter manager, talk to Anya Combs. Um, but it's it's yeah. a whole job because running a Kickstarter, having done one, is just so stressful. Yeah. I'm I'm like a at the time of this recording I'm like a week and a week and a few days out um so I'm I'm like feeling it a little bit but I've gotten most everything done I'm just like uh, like I know I'm gonna be I'm gonna be like I don't know just well first of all I'm gonna be very high on the day that we launch so that I can you. relax <laughs> and, <for> then, <laughs> and then uh and then yeah I'm just gonna take the day off so I'm either gonna be crying for good reasons or bad reasons on the first two days hopefully it's um, good reasons the, if yeah. honestly the first two days are the most important because that's when you should be getting your funding like yeah if you are being funded on like the first two days you're kind of in not quite in trouble but you technically see typically we'll see all of your funding come in on the first two days and the last two days right mm-hmm. yeah if you're like struggling right in the middle of your campaign, like you haven't hit 50%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, I've, uh, well, I've contributed to projects who who failed on Kickstarter and it's such a, it's such a, um, yeah, it's such a gut check. Like, um, and I wasn't like running the Kickstarter or anything. I was just a contributor, but like, yeah, it sucks. Um, yeah, it's, I worked, it's... I was set to freelance on uh, a project and my, my participation was contingent on it being funded on Kickstarter. Yeah. And um, some folks kind of went in with the like with like they were like, yeah, it's going to get funded because we have X amount of followers on Twitter or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't have really like authentic follow. They didn't have an authentic following. Yeah. Uh, and so they when they went to, you know, kickstart it like nobody backed it. So, yeah, Kickstarter yeah. is is scary. But if you're it sounds like you're you're taking all the right steps to make sure that it succeeds. That's and then a- <laughs> you'll have more content, too, because if it fails, hey, that's a whole other episode. Of hundreds of dollars <laughs> on Kickstarter, but if it succeeds, there's also an episode on it. Regardless, you're going to get an episode yeah. on it. The yeah, stress yeah. of Kickstarter. Yeah, I yeah, it is. It's a uh, it's something. But I think um. So the one of the things that I've learned in the past, like, and especially because of the mentorship given to me by Anya, um, has been that uh, obviously, uh, and, and some of my other former like mentors and people that I've uh, like sort of learned from, like Devin Nash, as far as like new media is concerned and like how things work. 
Um, you're absolutely right about like having a dedicated fan base and your calls to action can vary so much on social media platforms depending on what you built up your platform to do. So if you built your platform up to be like an outrage marketing machine in which you are just climbing engagement ratings because like you're talking about like sensationalized stuff then that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to sell a lot of books or whatever your product 100%. is. hundred percent. You see that a lot in, in like D and D it's like people yeah. either do outrage marketing or a big one that I don't think people do as much anymore. Either that or like the algorithm knows I really hate it <laughs> is um, people be like giveaways, follow me for uh, this. Yeah, and then yeah, they yeah. just do giveaways and they build up this huge following and then nobody engages with them because right. they only followed them because they want some, wanted something for free. Right. Yeah. 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 I think, um, yeah, my uh, most of my platform is not built on selling books. It's really just built on, hey, learn how to make more money in the industry. And that's what I love to do. That's what I personally really like to do. So that's yeah. what my platform is more geared towards. So it's good at that. I don't know if it's good at selling books on Kickstarter. So which is why I have like focused on like, how do I advertise properly? Because that's what it's going to come down to is marketing and advertising. And how do I put myself in newsletters with good calls to action? And how do I align with certain brands and partners that will have share their audience with me um, in a collaborative way. So once we're talking about like project management and working with people that you want to work with, the same thing for like my company, like when I'm building this book, I'm looking at who we want to both put in the book and then work with together. Like we have this partnership with Describe and mm. Describe creates really great content and they pay their, they pay their writers, you know, decently. And like they, um, they have like such a broad breadth of like really great content that makes uh, being a GM very accessible to a lot of people. And they, you know, they have a high bar for it, but they also have like a huge newsletter. So, and the, this, you know, these people that they can reach out to and like say, Hey, we're working with describe and then describe has already like, they're actually the number one people that has grown the awareness of our book was out of anybody else. It was describe, believe it or not. Yeah. And, um, yeah, because they have that connection with their audience in which their connection is like, this is great content that you can use. And yeah, that's I mean, why another we, thing, yeah. I mean, you, you said that like, oh, on Twitter, people know me for like talking about you know, working as a freelancer and all of that. Right. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing with this project that you've got coming out. It, it is a it is you acting on all the lessons you learned on this podcast. It's you being like, hey, this is a project where everybody got paid fair and we did our best to, to manage it properly and set a standard. That, I mean, that's how I would do it. Like for for Wandering Blades, which is the game that I'm designing right now, like one, like it's going to have a system agnostic campaign setting um, because I, I want people to be able to use it in whatever game they want. It's also yeah. just like the style of product that I really like. Um, yeah. But whenever I put something out, like for Candlekeep Mysteries or for Tian Shah or Dark Archive or these other projects that I'm not allowed to talk about, <laughs> for, for me, I, I see them as opportunities to act on how I present myself online on that's the main platform I'm on uh, mm -hmm. on Twitter. Like. What you see on Twitter is exactly who I am in real life. I, I don't know if you had expectations of what I was like in real life, but uh, who I am on Twitter is pretty much who I am in real life. Yeah. And for me, it's like with Asians Represent, it's always been, hey, we we don't want to rage bait. We want to 
talk about why certain things are wrong and problematic, but we also want to provide solutions. So with everything that I do, it's always with the intent of putting content out there that serves as a solution to the systemic problems we see in the industry. So for Candlekeep Mysteries, I could have totally, they didn't ask me to write anything Asian. Mm -hmm. They just said, hey, you got a level 12 adventure. Starts Mm -hmm. at Candlekeep, has to start with a book. What's your idea? Yeah, yeah. And I made the choice to write something inspired by my culture because mm-hmm. a i thought well if i only get one shot i mm-hmm. want this i want to be remembered for something that aligned with who i am as a designer yeah. um but also like i constantly talk about the problems with you know x y and z and D and D. who would i be if i if i didn't get an opportunity and act on that yeah right so you know with the book of inner alchemy i wanted nuanced asian characters boom I wrote nuanced Asian characters. I felt like Ki or Chi is like really poorly represented in D&D from its real life analog. Worked within the, the sky, can rewrite the key rules in D&D, obviously. But right. with the lore notes with the Book of Inner Alchemy, it talks about, you know, Ki being not this like mystical thing, but something that's related to breath and has medical purposes, more aligned with the real life inspiration for it. You know, I talk about Asian representation all the time, not only in you know, the production process, but also in like the products that we see, I feel like I would compromise who I am and the content that I make outside of like being a writer by going in and writing an adventure about white characters. Yeah. Um, and, and going back to like project management, I really appreciate you say that means a lot coming from you um, about project management, but like me, like in, in wrapping up just prior to the Kickstarter, I remember saying things like, and I fallen short of like my own personal goals for how I was going to run the project. And there's definitely things that I learned from it and I'm going to do better in the future and why I've hired a project manager, for instance. But um, one of the things has always been like really transparent with pay, really transparent with like, if the pay is not on time, here's where it is. And then here's how much I've like spent so far. And I just did the tabulation the other day and it was like, and I, and I showed, I shared it with everyone on the team. Cause I was like, I've spent $9,000 on contributors thus far. And I've spent about $2,000 on just advertising marketing, leading us to where we are right now, prior to the Kickstarter before any pay-per-click ads. And um, it's important for me to be upfront with them about that because I want to make sure that they know that I'm not just like collecting a bunch of money and just letting it pool anywhere. It's important that I update them constantly and I'm like, hey, I'm, you know, getting, I understand. I know I have not paid you yet. I know that. And in the future, when I run projects, um, like you were saying, like um, building the sort of uh, scaffolding for those freelancers is much more important to me. So now I'm going in with a smaller team pre-Kickstarter so that we can really address um, or build the things that we know are going to be in the book. We can produce those well. And then after that, and we get more money, then we can slice up the pie and figure out where we want filling in with other freelancers. And I think that's probably a better way to do it for freelancers and i will do that in the future but yeah i really yeah talking about you know and also talking about bonuses and stuff right yeah yeah absolutely you know a lot of people will will go and work on a project and then they'll be like you know i got paid fair i got paid like 20 25 cents a word and then the project goes and makes x number of dollars like well okay holy shit i'm I'm not making as much as i I feel like i should yeah uh, that's one of the things i wanted to change about the projects that i run because it's this is not like the only project i'm going to run i have two other projects that will like and one at the end of 2023 and one in the beginning of 2024 now um that i'll run and i want people to have a good experience and then want to come back for more work and then do their best work when they're working with me in order to create a better experience for everyone that's not only playing that game but then the community gets 
gets better because they are, instead of 10 freelance jobs a month, they can take one or two and really, really enjoy, focus. Yeah, yeah, focus and enjoy the process. And it's a sustainable way. They don't have to hustle. You've talked about not liking hustle culture, you know, I'm unfortunately a hustle at heart until I die. But, um, <laughs> Look, it, it, it to, to each me, their though. own to each their it own it's, it's it's not for me like right it's like some people really like it. and look i i hustled a lot like yeah. i was like really grinding and it's you know how i got to where i am but also like yeah. i think the pandemic and like the state of the world really changed a lot of people's perspectives on like what is important to you is is it important for you to sort of like aggrandize wealth or is it important to make meaningful collection connections with people I think yeah. to a certain extent, yeah, I, like it, you need to have a roof over your head. You need to have food on your table. You need to have security. But after yeah. that, like, what is important to you? Is it is it just having nice things? Is it, or, or is it, you know, people you can trust in your life, having yeah. love, having support, uh, having knowledge, learning, having experiences, although I guess experiences in a sense can can cost dollars. But I think a lot of people need to think about like, well, why are you doing this? And yeah. it's a question that I ask people when I'm as a cultural consultant and going into a product, uh, a project early, especially if I go into one early, I'll always ask, are you making this project? Why are you making this book about a culture that is not your own? Like, what is your intent behind that? And I think Can a I lot of people, oh yeah, go for it. Because <laughs> they want to make um, money. <laughs> um, no, we'll uh, for, Samurai. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. I, first of all, um, I totally agree. Uh, with you. <laughs> Even though I'm a hustler, I'm a uh, reformed hustler. I try to hustle in sprints and then I know I can't sustain it because I recently like I recently just had to take like a four day vacation emergency because I was just like burned out. I can't, yeah, I got burnt. I took so fucking burnt out and it just almost crushed me. So I was just like, I'm I just sent a message to my discord. I hit I hit at everyone, which was disrespectful to everyone else. It didn't concern. But I was like, yeah, not running <laughs> games for four days. I'm out. I went outside and I touched grass. Touch grass. Was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, I same thing. Like with Asians represent, we're the first ever Asian podcast to win an any award. There are a lot of like expectations behind it. Like Asians represent is like this monolith now. And a lot of people don't realize that like behind Asians represent is like a really tired Daniel Kwan. <laughs> like wrangling all of our guests, doing all of the graphic design, doing all the notes, doing all the editing like literally everything and it like things have certainly changed like our team has grown from like a couple like two people mostly me because i'm a workaholic first of all uh, yeah. like i'm true trans like transparency i'm a workaholic i love work i don't relax Same. like Same. i don't like it if you're like Same. take a day off i'm like <laughs> i took a day off and i was like i'm gonna finish this freelance thing <laughs> For my day job, like took a vacation for my, like I took a, a, like a, a, I take vacation to work on freelance stuff. And I'm like, oh God, I can't always do this. And like once or twice a year, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to disappear from TTRBGs. I don't care anymore. Um, or a thing that I tell myself is, you know what? I just want to be a fan. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to just make stuff. I just want to experience yeah. things now. Um, but that happens when you're just constantly grinding and not taking time for yourself. It also happens when you turn your hobby into your job. Yeah, yeah, we were we briefly talked about that in the the kind of it's not it, it's a danger for some people and everybody has a different limit. For yeah, this. it's not for everyone. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely not for. I think it. I think for like you and me, for instance, I think it. You know, it's a little more tenable because we, you and me, are self uh, asserted workaholics. But like um, for me, it's wonderful. But at the same time, like I can still get burnt out. Like I just did this past month. 100%. Yeah, and then it and then that is when it's like dangerous to because you don't engage it with it the same way, and it's like draining, and you don't have anything to turn to because then you have like turned your hobby into what you are afraid of 
you know? Yeah, 100%. It's it's why I, um, like on Twitter, I, I don't really post all that much. I sometimes do, like, Ahmed Best just came back as Keller and Beck in The Mandalorian. Spoilers, I'm so sorry, everyone. But I was like, <laughs> what a redemption arc. I'm going to tweet about that. But I, yeah. I, I don't want, like, my Twitter presence is no, like, I'm not trying to, like, network. I'm not trying to clout chase. I'm not trying to cause drama. <laughs> I'm just trying to really just enjoy being me enjoy yeah. spending time with my friends spend time with my partner um take care of my family go see my parents um yeah and do work that i find is meaningful because if i drop dead tomorrow i want i want to die knowing that you know i've lived a meaningful life i've gone and i've been able to look back on the previous day and been like you know what yesterday was a good day i tried my best gosh cloud chasing what a what a what a phrase that has just been you know, just rebounding all over Twitter lately. But oh, yeah, yeah, I know. And it's, and you, yeah. It, and it's one thing that you got to be careful about when like TTRPGs are also a small, a small community. So if you're working as a freelancer, like I made what, a thread whether, about cloud chasing. <laughs> did you? What, what are your thoughts on it? I'd love to hear it. Um, it's actually built into my business model. Um, so I, I used like sort of a twisted version of cloud chasing, which is not the exact definition, but you know, language. So, um, Basically, uh, I use sort of like borderline sensational stuff, right? Because I talk about money. And that's what that is. Yeah, exactly. It is basically like because I say things that are sort of a little bit more sensational or not or taboo to talk about. It exposes me to a wider audience. And then when I have more eyes on that audience, then they can see, oh, this person does this. And then they get exposed to my educational stuff or my other stuff. And that's just basic advertising. But like, I think people like take some things very personally because it can be used as an insult, right? It can be used as like, your work is not important because you were just in this for the clout, right? I, I, I completely, first of all, I completely agree with you. I mean, I'm the guy who called out Wizards of the Coast about Oriental Adventures. I'm that guy, yeah, that right? Guy. Uh, I'm that guy. Like a lot of people, when Candlekeep was announced, never Google yourself. First of all, never Google yourself. <laughs> because then you'll find that like people on Gamergate know who you are. Oh, God. St- there was a thing. It's like Daniel Kwan's working on Candlekeep. Like, oh, what God. a hypocrite. Yeah. Um, for the same reasons, right? Like, yeah, you want eyes on what you're doing so that you can draw in your audience and then, boom, hit him with the knowledge, right? Hey, mm-hmm. I'm here to teach you. Um, but I think in the conversation about cloud chasing, there are people who just want the eyes and don't provide something meaningful. Um, yeah. I think you saw a lot of that during this OGL fiasco. Unfortunately, and and some of it was really harmful. And there are some people where I'm just like, if anyone is ever involved with like that person, then I really seriously consider working with them because of their proximity to like, you know, yeah. that person that was being deliberately very harmful to real yeah, or just could, contributing to the rage or trying to get follows because it was like, oh, I just learned something new about the OGL or something like that. I was like, no. Yeah. As, like, as, yeah. as yeah. someone who had a project about to go to Kickstarter three months away, which was initially developed just for 5e, I was devastated by the OGL news. Me but too. I, <laughs> but exactly. Like, and I was not out there, like, you know, just posting about, you know, I don't know. Like, I'm so torn on it because I can understand why people would feel that way and why they would post about that. But then at the same time, I'm just like, I had real like financial concerns about it because I was, I was looking, yeah, I was looking at it and I was just like, did I just spend $8,000 on stuff I can't use? 100%. And that's the thing that people, 
Another thing people didn't get was like, okay, we're abandoning D&D. But what about all the other marginalized people who rely on D&D and TTRPGs? Or the same thing with folks who are like, I'm leaving Twitter, right? Yeah, it might be easy for you to leave Twitter. But what about all the people who built up their audience and need it? Like, I don't want to go to another platform and like try to build up an audience there. Um, Like I, it's it's just not for me. Um, But also everybody that I know is on Twitter. Like I'm here until it, until they pull the plug on Twitter. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I also kind of like seeing it go down. (laughs) Yeah, you're like a bit of both. (laughs) You're having the Uh, martini at the very end of the Titanic, you know. Oh, 100%. I'm just sitting there, I'm like life jacket. (laughs) Like that's me. But yeah, yeah, you saw a lot of that during the OGL thing, like a mix of like, rage against wizards or misplaced rage against watsi employees many of you mm-hmm. are like also my friends like they don't deserve any of that it's not their decision this wasn't their decision to make um and then of course creators who who i thought really showed like their true positive intention like one who like i've respect i respected way before the ogl but I'd respect it even more after is Ginny d because Ginny mm-hmm. d was kept it real during that mm-hmm. thing and Ginny was just like yo this is wrong and here's why. But also like you can't go attacking Watsi employees. It's not their fault. Yeah. Like I think Ginny is like a real good example of somebody who really showed that they are a genuine person, at least in my eyes. Yeah. Um, but then there are other creators who are just like new thing and just trying to get clicks out of it. And I think people can tell. It's it's really it's kind of upsetting in a lot of ways because like it's I look at like my top tweets or whatever and I have like a program that does it for me and I'm like, okay, so I have my top tweet of all time, which is a thread about how much I made running Curse of Strahd last year, which was a lot of money, right? I actually saw that. Yeah, it, I, everyone saw that. 350,000 impressions for my, and that, and I wrote that when I was only like a thousand people, thousand followers. So yeah. it was like huge for me, but, um, and that was right after I did the Gen Con freelancer panel, which was an amazing experience as well. But um, yeah, so like it was it was just weird to like have that sudden exposure. And then I was like, OK, well, people want me to talk about money. So I'm like, here's how everything works. Here's how you get started. Here's like things you can do uh, in order to improve your life, because ultimately, like making a little bit more money for a lot of people is life changing, especially for marginalized people or that have disability in the world. Other parts yeah, of the world exactly. Too, right? Yeah. Yeah, it precisely that. And like, um, you know, I talked to a lot of GMs, for instance, in, in South America, where the cost of living is much lower. So literally running like two or three games. It's your mom. Um, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, get, yeah, yeah, they, they, it changes their entire life. And um, people that I've talked to who are multiple marginalized for various different reasons, they can't hold down a job in person, they work remote, they can run games because they love D&D or whatever it might yep. be. And now they, <clears throat> I had one you know, James, who I talk with pretty frequently is in my community. And um, he is a, a, a disabled trans person. And um, he is able to support himself completely and shout out to James. Earn, yeah, shout out to James doing it and um, is completely like up to the limit as what to what you can earn on disability and then completely paid off all of his debt and like is just living the dream now. So it's like what right. you it, it's good to have that stuff out there and to like push those things. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, it can be really scary and dangerous because like there's a couple of things that I noticed in the last few months and I'm sure you you are going to have uh maybe you'll have a lot of stuff to talk about this sure but. let's let's hear it let's, let's draw it out of me yeah podcast host. <laughs> um so i noticed there was a certain point where the flip switched 
and I became a commodity of people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. All the time. It's like uh, there are people who only message me if they want something from me. Yeah. Only message me if they want something. I just ignore them now. I just ignore them now. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I think we we always talk about community online. The TTRPG community. Yeah, it's an industry. It's an industry. Or like the player base. It's a player base. <clears throat> we don't really you don't really care about everyone out there. I'm not saying you, I'm not saying I. Like we see so much toxicity out there. And like nobody is like really looking out for like marginalized creators. There was like one thing that I've noticed is just and this is just on social media, the centralization of like America in every conversation. Everybody on social media is just their perspective is their Western American perspective on everything out there. They refuse to understand or acknowledge that there are other <laughs> there are other perspectives and situations. There's one that I always talk about on um on I gotta look this up. Just look this up. We'll we'll cut this so that you sound exactly like you know. No, what you're no, no, about. no, 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 no. This one doesn't. Don't worry about it. It's okay to research. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Okay, so there was, um, I think this this happened last year, but there was obviously like TikTok is a Chinese company, right? Mm -hmm. And there was this huge, huge issue with um, creators on TikTok in America being upset at Asian people. And this was at the height of like anti-Asian hate. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Videos appeared of Chinese farmers eating watermelon cotton fields. Okay. And yeah, there was a lot of outrage about that. Like okay. our and like they and they're talking and everything. And a lot of people were just like really mad at Chinese people because they're like, oh, Chinese farmers. They didn't even know they were Chinese farmers. First of all, these Chinese people are basically making videos about racist tropes associated with like black Americans. Right? Yeah. Talking about like cotton farming and watermelon without realizing that the, the, the Chinese people in these videos are literally watermelon and cotton farmers who are advertising their products. And everything is viewed out of context, right? People yeah. were so mad at all these people without realizing that, yeah, you know, they grow cotton in other parts of the world and they grow watermelon yeah. in other parts of the world and watermelon and cotton are often grown near one another. But there was just so much outrage from the sort of Western American perspective. Failed to kind of stop and be like, what are they actually saying in these videos? Um, and, and that's like one of the issues that we see with TTRPGs, right? People yeah. like to, people realize that it's trendy and it's, and not and there are positives and negatives to this not to call you out or anything that you get attention for being mad you get attention for being mad and it's really hard to kind of reinforce that yeah you do get attention for being mad but do you only want to put negativity out into the world i don't know where i was going with this thought but it I definitely just, uh, it, it's it, something that you see a lot in the ttrpg community or industry yeah. twitter verse yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of character played on twitter <laughs> yeah you know 100 yeah there's 100%. a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of folks out there who um, instead of like taking their time to create things, which is fine. I mean, not everybody has to be a creator. Not everybody has to like create things in order to build a platform. I think if you're in the creator economy, maybe you do create things because that's yeah. how that works generally. Works. But yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's like one of those things where it's like. Um, the low effort react content um, is just very like fraught with that sort of toxic mindset. So I, I think um, it's better to, if you are like thinking about, Hey, why did my marketing fail? Or why did I not get to, this is going to bite me in the ass when my Kickstarter fails. <laughs> your Kickstarter is not going to fail. <laughs> you're, um, but, you're approaching with all the right, 
<laughs> all the right intentions. You're doing you're you're doing it oh. as as correct as you want as you could possibly do. You have some sound bites from this episode now if it fails, but I don't <laughs> think it will. I, I, I mean, you're you're. I think the thing you're we we're both kind of like circling around is like what is the intent behind the content you make? What is the intent behind the the tweet that you're posting? Right? Yeah. Why are you making this product? Is it to pay homage to something? Is it to share your story with the world is it because you had a lot of fun simply is it simply because you had a lot of fun doing this story with your home game and you want other people to experience it that's really cool right um yeah but everybody needs to step back and be like why are you doing this what is your intent with this product if you are hiring a cultural consultant what is your intent to circle back to our initial topic you are you know, working on a concept for a campaign setting, and you want to build in potentially thorny elements to it, what is your intent behind that? If you are, you know, say like a content creator, and you know there's something particularly dramatic going on in the industry like the OGL, and you want to go and make a video or make a Twitter thread, what is your intent behind that? Is what you're doing going to cause harm to others? Right? Is it going to turn people and turn a mob against Watsi employees because it shouldn't? Yeah. Right. But some people did because they want the clicks, they want they want the follows, um, and nothing more than that. It's okay to want clicks and follows if you're trying to sell people something, but at least be transparent about it. Um, that's how I feel. So when I see people on Twitter, I'm like, ah. Oh fake as fuck yeah like 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 i think it's obvious and i and i don't think i'm special for being able to spot that yeah it's uh yeah it's it's definitely like there's a smell to it right but yeah for um and to finally answer your question because we came around to this before but to answer your question the reason i'm developing this product the vineyard rpg yeah was because um i was asking actually um one of the people who had a really positive impact in my uh career was uh jasmine uh bueller and jasmine, um, yeah yeah so um i worked for her for a little while oh, and that's cool. we yeah worked on as, a project together can't say what yeah, it is but we worked on a project together yeah yeah uh cool uh maybe i'll you know what i'll see i'll be like oh that's what daniel was talking about yeah you, <laughs> it, you'll know <laughs> yeah yeah um but yeah so um yeah i i was asking her i was like yeah it looks like it's really hard to get like writing gigs in ttrpg how to how to you know how should i go about that because i've been like you know i'm a good writer um you know how should i go about that and she was like hey you're pretty good at project managing you should just do it and then i was like okay and then i sent some emails to people and they all said yes so um really for me though it's kind of evolved into i initially had this home game right and i wanted to bring to life sort of it was my first homebrew and i wanted to bring something to the table that they were interested in playing and had fun doing but then as i kind of expanded the project and i was like i need to think about this more critically so i ended up hiring um am Ebel as my uh as a consultant to sort of come in for my stream game and say hey i'm sort of developing this project which or this campaign thread that i think may be problematic for a number of reasons but i wanted sort of an outside opinion on i respect your work and i wanted to uh just talk about it so we spent like four or five hours like developing this story thread that i never used by the way i may end up putting it in maybe in the future yeah exactly but um but I had that conversation. That's how I connected initially with M. And then later down the road, pitched them like, hey, do you want to be the co-creator on this? And like, because I know how you work. I really like how you work. And I was thankful enough to sort of connect with M on that. But then after that, it became like, not what is my perspective on how this um, organization or this setting should be developed. It was like, what kind of great perspectives can I bring to this overall theme? Which was, what does... Um, 
evil capitalism look like in a fantasy like gothic horror setting right sold and um that's kind of what it it has been and um I've been handing some stuff off to more appropriate people for its um, sort of inspiration. Like I have a, I think I can, I think I can talk about this because it's, it came from, uh, and I just discussed it with Bashir and a Bashir like changes. I love Bashir. Yeah, who doesn't love Bashir? I've had great I just had Bashir, Bashir on the podcast. Yeah, I yeah. saw that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bashir is like old friend of mine. It's, it's actually really, really? funny because Bashir and I were talking and I was like, I, like no credit to me. But I was like, Bashir said, was, Bashir was like, oh, yeah, like, I remember when you invited me on the podcast, like, I had, like, one little game, and I had no reason to be there, and look at us now. <laughs> and I was like, you totally had a reason to be on the podcast, because you had a story to tell. Um, yeah. It, yeah, I, I think, I, I always recommend Bashir. If it's, like, if it aligns with Bashir's expertise, I will always recommend yeah. Bashir for something. Yeah, the, what what I uh, ended up uh, reaching out, um, and I was asking, like, I was talking with Kiana, and I was like, I have this concept uh, that I was really interested in, but I'm not the right person for it. And it was uh, something um, sort of centered around, uh, um, I might be saying this word wrong, um, Jin, 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 yeah. Jin, Jin, Jin. Yeah. Um, like Bashir's and- Game, Bashir's Game coming out. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. So I was like, hey, who do you recommend for this? And then Kenan was like, hey, just get a hold of Bashir. And I was like, okay, cool. So I kind of handed off the initial concept of Bashir and I was like, is this something that you might be interested in writing or something you want to put your own twist on or something like in this realm? And um, he was like, yeah. And I was like, okay, do you want to develop a lieutenant for the vineyard that's kind of following like these ideas that you have? And that's how I've done pretty much all of the lieutenants in the vineyard. That's awesome. You approach yeah. the the person whose culture might inspire the, that inspired the idea in your head and be like, hey, do you want to do this? I love that. And I don't know why you were like, oh, I don't know if my following will actually go for this Kickstarter. It sounds like this Kickstarter and this project is perfectly aligned with the brand that you've built and who you are as a person from this like hour and a half conversation that we've had with each other. This is the first time that we've spoken. I guess so. I mean, I'm like in your discord, but like I don't talk in there. Someone oh, talked okay. about me there once and like someone to let me know and I like went in there and like, oh, you that's have questions cool. about being a pro GM. That's the first time that that ever happened. That's but, super cool. Yeah. I, I just like, I think I just want more people to work in RPGs. That's my big yeah. thing. And like, I like, you know, we each have our own ways of doing it, right? You're providing advice to people about how to break into the industry and talking about things that are actually very important, like pay and all that. And for me, it's like my approach has always been through representation. Like you look at when they announced Tian Sha, like the new Tian Sha books when Paizo announced it. Like most of the comments were like, this is like half of the team is just Asians represent. Goals. So cool. So cool, so right? Cool. So cool. I think like a lot of a lot of people are like, did you just go into the Asians represent server <laughs> and just find people? I'm like, sure. <laughs> I, I I think that to me is like what I wanted to see. I want to yeah. see more people break into the industry and make huge change. One person can't do it all, right? We we live off of this, like uh scarcity mindset when it comes to opportunity oh my god it's so it kills me it's super toxic because like for me i'm constantly like i don't want to aggrandize and hoard freelance jobs like no i'm like i can't do this right now i'm going to recommend it to this person like other people do that to me like my friend Mm -hmm. Lim, who works in a lot of board games and rpgs always messaged me he's like hey you want you got time to work on this i feel like this works for you i'm like oh yeah, yeah I, I can do that or be like uh i don't know but how about this person and we just yeah. kind of like pass off gigs to people that we trust and your network kind of grows and grows and grows yeah. and then these creators now know a new consultant or a new writer or a new artist uh, yeah. and then so they can reach out to them directly yeah i you know uh you, you made me tear up because i was starting to think about like my team and uh it ended up <laughs> 
It ended up uh, just sort of turning out that over half of my team is is queer. I have a lot of trans representation in my uh, on my That's team awesome. for Vineyard you know, RPG, and like that didn't happen like intentionally, but I was just like, oh, look at this cool trans person I want to work with, and I just kept doing that. I guess. There so, we go. There yeah. we go. Yeah, I. Uh, that's first of all, that's awesome to hear. That's really awesome to hear. I. Uh, I don't know what else to say. I just want to hug you right now. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> that's awesome. We just become friends. Okay. Yeah, I know, right? No, we, we. I think we 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 became friends a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> but like you know, representation. I think the the overarching theme here is that like representation is really important, and like we have our own ways of enabling that, providing like providing resources to people who typically don't have access to those resources or yeah. access to those connections or access to a platform. Mm -hmm. Really important. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about uh, Tian Sha. Go, can, go. Can you, can uh, you, I'll see can if you I can answer it and then we can cut it out if we can. If there's like a weird break, <laughs> it's because we couldn't use it. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, what was your... Uh, oh, I can't talk about that. <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought you were going to say, what, what did you write? I can't talk about that. No, no, that. no. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Just this whole part of the episode is just bleeped. Um, so uh, for Tian Sha, um, how long was the writing process for you? Oh, for, I mean, it was assignment? different for every person. It was different right. for every person. Um, a, for me, it was a couple months. Mm -hmm. um, some people, they they work for like half a year. Yeah. Um, okay. I've worked on projects that, I mean, I, I guess your general question is most about time frames, right? On, yeah. on projects. Like Candlekeep for me was like a good five, six months. Mm -hmm. five or six months um uh one project i worked on i've worked on for like two years mm -hmm. uh, and it's not even out yet and i'm my my part is finished and the product is, is still not yeah. out yet um i i've worked on motherlands for i actually keep track of everything one thing i recommend to people is to like really have a, a good tool for tracking all of the work that you do and managing your day-to-day -day. my recommendation is notion oh yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah um i've been working on motherland since august of 2021 okay yeah yeah uh and i one. kind of wrapped up my stuff uh january 2023 okay um tian sha was uh three months my longest project was actually my first one it was like three years <laughs> oh wow um yeah i worked on another thing for yeah, most freelance i think the quickest ones are like you look at uh tome of magic it was like a cobalt my god i'm going to forget the title of it it's uh it was a cobalt press book about uh with tons of magical items on it uh um, deep magic no oh my god this is so embarrassing uh don't cut this out though um <laughs> vault of magic vault of magic thank you yeah Daniel's worked on so many projects he forgets about them. No, Daniel's just really tired. <laughs> um, I worked on Vault of Magic for like a day. Yeah, I was just like, boom, I'm done. Yeah, um, yeah. Subcultural consulting gigs have lasted like 10 hours, like yeah. total, spread out over the course of a certain amount of time. Yeah. Um, I did a cultural consulting gig and it lasted two hours and it started with a phone call and, and yeah. it ended with a phone call. Yeah. Um, it was like, hey, I need you to listen to this episode of this actual play that we pre-recorded. And I just listened to the episode and that was it. Uh, yeah. As a freelance writer, it, it really varies depending on the scope of the project. Sometimes you'll start by writing a pitch and then you'll have to wait while they kind of pull everything together and gather all of these ideas and organize things. Sometimes you'll write and you'll be done in like two months and then they'll come back to you like six months later and be like, hey, we need some rewrites because we changed yeah. all of this. Here's a new contract. Right. Hopefully they say, here's a new contract. Yeah. Um, other times it's like, hey, we need you to work on this. Here's a due date. You need to do X number of words. And you could write it all really fast and be done. Or you could be like writing like wait right until the deadline. Yeah. Um, it really depends. Um, but as a freelancer, it's really important to 
or if you're a consultant, if you're a writer, to be like, what is the timeline for this project? Um, like I've been asked by big companies, and I'll, I'll tell you after the recording, uh, to like come on to this project. And I'm like, oh, this would be really cool to have my name on it. But also like, I don't like your timeline is three weeks and I have a full-time job yeah. and I, I don't think that I would be able to do this. And yeah. I, I turn them down and I'll recommend somebody else. Yeah. Um, but it's really important as a freelancer to kind of go back to the point of your podcast, really understand the intent behind the creators, like mm-hmm. the creator's project or the lead's project. Like, why are they doing this? Be what is their timeline and how much are you going to potentially get paid for this? Timeline is really important because you also don't want to burn yourself out by being like, I have to write 10,000 words in a week. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some people can do it. Some people can't. Oh, my um, God. There. Yeah. That's Sarah Madsen. <laughs> Like, I can't do that. Also, like, I, I'm dyslexic. So, like... Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I'm dyslexic. Um, Like, sometimes it's really hard for me to do things. And I'm usually... I'm typically really upfront with people about it, too. Yeah. I'm like, if you want to try... If you want to do it by the by the word for this cultural consultant thing, it might take me longer because of my disability. Right, um, yeah. But also like, hey, this is why I charge a certain rate. Um, mm-hmm. I also tend to be really flexible. I don't hit a stop clock, like a stopwatch. And then yeah. like, no, like I'm I'm pretty flexible with the amount of time it takes for me because I'm aware of like how my brain works, the unique yeah. way my brain works. Because I, I also have other superpowers that, that help me out, right? <laughs> I'll also be upfront with people if I'm consulting and be like, hey, if you see comments on your document at like three in the morning, it's not because <laughs> I'm like, I'm behind. It's because my brain just happens to work really well at three in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's um. Go ahead. Sorry. No, and it's like setting expectations really is is so important. But again, time frame it really varies depending on if I'm a consultant or if I'm a writer. Um, Mm -hmm. it depends on what the person wants, right? If if I'm just a writer and I'm not responsible for rewrites or there's no expectation of rewrites and it's just a word count, typically it's like two to three months. Yeah, I would say that's like the average. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there are some projects that just last forever. Like I've been working on this project, working on this project with like a co-designer since like summer of last year. And we're still in the ideation phase. Yeah. No, sometimes it takes that long, right? Sometimes it takes that long. And I'm okay with that because like we're both we're both super busy working on other projects. We have set an expectation with one another through like constant check ins like, hey, we still good for this. And it's a cool one. It's adapting a comic book into an RPG, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, that is cool. Um, Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I think that I'm going to start trying to embrace, like perhaps towards the end of this year is like doing more like little things with like just one of the homies, you know what I mean? Like, and just, we don't yeah. have like a set dialogue and it's like sort of keeps, keeps the, the hobby alive. You know what I mean? In our 100%. spirit. Everybody yeah. needs a writing partner. Like I have, I have a, my, my good friend, Angus, we, he used to actually work for me at the museum as uh-huh. one of my, one of my DMS. Oh, really? Um, on my staff. And okay. we, we play at the height of the pandemic. We, well, we've always played video games with one another. And we're like, well, what if we wrote, we used to play a lot of Rainbow Six Siege. We we're yeah. like, well, what if we made an RPG based on Rainbow Six? Oh and gosh. we would just like, we constantly have all these drafts. <laughs> and then I got this opportunity from uh, James D'Amato, like the One Shot Podcast Network. Yeah, yeah. It's like, hey, we're doing the ultimate micro RPG book for Simon and Schuster. Yeah. Do you want to yeah, do yeah. it? I'm down. I will always, if I get like a big opportunity, I will always ask, can I bring a friend? That is like my thing. Yeah, can I yeah. bring a friend? I'll split my pay. Can I bring a friend? Because I yeah. always want other people to get other opportunities. And I knew yeah. Angus wants to be a writer. And I was like, Angus, that's an opportunity. It's a micro RPG, two pages. We've been working on stuff together. Do you want to just adapt what we're doing into this? And Angus was like, of yeah. course I do. And we wrote t- 
going dark. And it's like literally a micro RPG inspired by Rainbow Six. Um, It's always important to have these passion projects behind the scenes that you're working on because it introduces you to like like new ideas. It helps you you sharpen your skills as a professional. And it also just is fun. Absolutely. Yeah, I... um... Yeah, I really need to I need to carve out uh, some time with someone um, that I work well with in that respect and like do that. I think that's kind of why I ended up um, like sort of asking and then thankfully she said yes. Uh, So Kiana Shaw is the co-lead on my my next two uh, books for these Kickstarters that we're doing the uh, Vineyard Adventure book because we had to the scope was too big for one Kickstarter. So we had to like push all the like the adventure stuff we wanted to do besides the preview adventure to the next book. And then we're doing a how to GM romance guidebook. It's working title, but essentially That's a good one for Kiana. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, there's the advice portion and then there's the actionable tools portion. Like we're going to have mini games um, like that Alex Roberts is going to bring to it and like Another some other person for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I'm, you know, I'm just I'm so excited about that book and like where it's going and like that sort of stuff I get like really excited about. So I like I just need something that nobody knows about now. <laughs> just like you know then and uh just working quietly on something of your own because i think a lot of people are really into just like constantly broadcasting what they're working on sometimes it's nice to just have your own little thing yeah absolutely yeah and absolutely and it's just what we're talking about like avoiding burnout and like keeping your love in the thing that you enjoy doing and creating for creator's sake and like just having that spirit in you that just allows you to uh, really just feel fulfillment out of it. I think that's super important. So you've inspired 100%. me. You've inspired 100%. me. I mean, this is important, right? For longevity. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I inspired you. I think you already knew this going <laughs> into it. This just, this, is, this just came up on the podcast. But yeah. yeah, no, it's super important to just have a writing partner or have a, you work on this little thing with. Like it's with the the game I'm designing, Wandering Blades. It's like I'm, we're slowly playtesting it. Um, but we're just kind of like writing it on the side with the agreement that like, yeah, I'm going to publish it through your company. Uh, we're going to work on it together. We're aligned on what the game is going to be. And we know why we're working on it. But like, we don't need to talk about it all that much. Like, yeah. Let's just keep it to ourselves for now. Let's enjoy it before we kind of start sharing it like openly with the world. As I say yeah. this on a podcast. Yeah. You know what? Now <laughs> it just now now this makes me feel awkward asking you this next uh, question. No, go for, it, go for it. Go for it. Go for it. What are you working on? <laughs> That is exactly what this question is. Is like, what would you like to tell the world about when this sure. podcast comes out? No, I'm happy to talk about it. I'm happy to talk about it because we have started playtesting it. So um, oh, cool. I am uh, alongside uh, Liana McKenzie. Um, I'm designing a, a game called Wandering Blades. It actually came out of like a day of me being actually like really sort of like angry and like stressed about like the OGL thing. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to write a game. And I wrote a game. Um, and I was like, oh, I have a game. Hey, Liana, I have this thing. Want to work on it with me? But yeah, working on this game called Wandering Blades. It is a, an old school inspired uh, TTRPG um, of the sort of wuxia and xinxia uh, genres. So like mm-hmm. Chinese martial arts fantasy. Um, it's got tactical combat uh, and really flashy mechanically sound action inspired by uh, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice was like one of my like favorite games 
Um, it's got like a parry mechanic and weapons feel lethal. And uh, it's also got really flashy martial arts techniques and stuff like that inspired by uh, Demon Slayer, one of my favorite anime and manga series. Um, so that's the current game I'm working on. We have no like timeline as to when it's going to come out. Uh, we just want to make sure that we design something that we're proud of. Um, yeah. We also, funny enough, had been, Liana and I had been working on uh, Chi. I had, well, I, I had been working on Chi rules for uh for D D, just like uh-huh. from like my home game. And I was like, yeah, I'm gonna put this out in January of 2023. Mm, no. Um, okay. It didn't work. It didn't work out because you know shit happened. Um and now I've I've kind of been like sitting on it. I'm like, well, I want to put this out because I think it would be meaningful. Um so I have it already written and we're just gonna keep adding to it. Basically we wanted to create rules for like key chi in D D that were like the unofficial sequel to what I did in Candlekeep. Um, but to basically replace inspiration and hero points and to allow characters of all classes to actually use chi because in Chinese culture, chi is literally in everything. Yeah. Um, so really comprehensive rules on like dynamic martial arts action in a D&D game without really changing anything that you're doing. Um, but we're also just writing rules on how to do it in Pathfinder as well. Just yeah. for fun, why not? No that timeline sounds dope. On- I really like it, and we're probably just going to put it out there and be like, pay what you want, because I just want people to <laughs> have less problematic representations yeah. of my culture in their game. Yeah. That's the intent behind it, right? Yeah. Um, it's like putting something out there that I'm proud of, and you know, it's something that I've used in my home game. So yeah, I'm working on those two things. I have a bunch of freelance stuff that I'm wrapping up. Obviously, like I'm I'm the showrunner of the Asians Represent podcast, where we talk about Asian representation in games. Uh, it's not a podcast that's just for Asian people. It's a podcast for anybody who wants to learn more about how to be more inclusive in their games, but also how to design games that are better representative of the cultures that you're drawing inspiration from. Yeah, we're we're back with our like fourth season. We've been doing it since like 2018. Uh, we just had Bashir Gauss on for an episode about decolonizing RPGs. And uh, when does this episode, when does this podcast come out? Um, I think I'm releasing this one in May or June. Okay, so by the time this podcast is out, we'll have already done a whole bunch of episodes, one of them on sort of uh, creating your own sort of like fantasy campaign settings, but inspired by different Asian cultures. We're doing a whole thing on homebrewing Asia, starting with China. We're going to do yeah. China and Japan, and we're just going to keep going through them based on the guests we can get. Uh, we'll do episodes this season on using tabletop RPGs in, in the classroom setting for educational purposes, uh, as well as a whole series of episodes on anime. The kind of like a lens into Asian culture through anime. Um, so really excited about what we're doing. We don't always just talk about RPGs, um, but at our core, we started as an RPG podcast and we'll always yeah. kind of go back there eventually. That's so cool. I, I love that you're just creating your own like pathway through the things that you love doing, even though you started one way and then you're just like kind of following the, the podcast is growing and evolving and aging with you like just in a beautiful way and that's really I will cool. just the whole thing is that I will do the podcast for as long as I find meeting out of it yeah. once I start doing the podcast out of like routine like oh I have to do the podcast I'm just gonna pull the plug I guess yeah. I have to our team has grown to eight now so I guess all eight of us will have to agree to pull the plug <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but um i, I want to make sure that you know we're producing something meaningful and like you know seeing literally half of the tian sha book be yeah. people who are on the podcast or be like people who are team members on the podcast is really awesome yeah really really awesome and you know as long and like seeing our community have meaningful conversations about representation is like is all i want to see is all yeah. i want to see yeah that's that's so fucking cool <laughs> i'm so i'm so like i 
you know, I have no bearing in your success, but I'm so proud of you, Daniel. No, I'm um, proud of you. I think <laughs> I think it's important to be proud of each other. And I think, you know, if you, if you say that and you'd be like, oh, I don't know if it means something. It means something. When you tell somebody you're proud of them, I think it's, it's important, even if it's on like a podcast like this. I would say the same thing to you. I'll say this right here. I would say the same thing to you privately. Like, I'm super hyped that you even I'm honored that you asked me to be on this podcast. Like, even if like people are like, oh, please come on my podcast. Like, I'm happy you asked. Of course, I'll be on your podcast. Um, I will always say yes. And I say this to your audience, too. If people have questions uh, about anything that I've talked about, cultural consulting, um, you know, being a freelancer, podcasting or anything like that, like, please reach out, like happy to to talk, happy to, to lend you my time. Um, because so many people lent me their time when I was starting. And I think you yeah. always need to pay it forward. Yeah, absolutely. I had so much help getting to this spot. And people often come to me and they're saying, look at how much stuff you've done. I'm just like, well, received my opportunities from other people first. I received all these opportunities in this mentorship and getting here has really just been like people telling me yes, like telling me like that they wanted to work with me and they were going to take time to help me. Yeah, so. 100%. Like, and I, I mean, the thing that I clearly I'm seeing you do is as you rise, you aren't rising while pushing down others, right? You're bringing people up with you. Right? I hope so. Uh, I mean, it seems like it <laughs> I hope so. with your content, right? Um, and then if I'm wrong, well, there's this soundbite for everybody to rub in my face, <laughs> but I really, I really don't think so. Um, but I think it's so important to do that, right? Because so many people like brought me along for the ride. Um, and I'm just happy to be here. I'm happy for every DM that I get. Where it's yeah. like, Daniel, I really like your content. Or can I get a clarifying question about Book of Inner Alchemy? I will answer all of your questions. Mm -hmm. um, or Daniel, like, where did what would you do after this? Happily answer, because I'm just grateful that people read what I've written or yeah. appreciate what I've done. Right? I think that's all we, we can ask for because it provides meaning to our work. Yeah, I I still get like, um, and it happened today, embarrassingly. But uh, whenever someone tells me that they they're on a guest on the podcast and that they've listened to the podcast, I'm just like, I'm just like, oh, oh. <laughs> look, I mean, the, the podcast itself is my favorite thing that I do. It makes me the least amount of money, but awesome. it's it's Who my cares? favorite thing. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. Asians represent. It makes me the least amount of money too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, I love doing it. I love doing it because like all these people, and but also like from like a, I mean, if you think about it from like a marketing perspective, it's also like I get to market myself through this podcast that's and true. all of my friends, yeah. um, but in a way that's on my terms yeah. um, and in a way that brings other people up. But yeah, like I, I vibe with that, liking something that doesn't bring you money because look, not everything you do has to <laughs> be an income source. Let's be honest. <laughs> like true. let's not monetize every aspect of our lives. And with that being said, I think it's time to close out the podcast of Dollars and Dragons after we said you don't have to monetize everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're cutting you off, Daniel. Yeah. Well, you don't want to be burnt out, right? You got to be strategic about what you monetize. There you go. Loop it back. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Follow Daniel's advice. Don't burn out. Hi, thanks for listening. If you want to support me, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash isfriday, or you can find some of the work that I'm doing at vineyardrpg.com if you want to pre-order the book that we made.